Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what's the secret to academic success? How do we solve the localization problem for autonomous mobile robots? What are the keys to success for communication within and between groups of autonomous agents? And how has nature inspired an entire field of engineering? What's the most advanced form of GPS on planet Earth? And how does the wisdom of crowds apply to groups of autonomous robots? Answers to questions like these and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract, the Future of Science. Let's get going. Dr. Ali Safai is a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at McGill University. His research interests include cooperative control and localization algorithms, for swarms of flying and ground-autonomous mobile robots. Ali was awarded a Mitax Accelerate Fund for his two-year postdoc position in collaboration with Humanitas Solutions, his industry partner. He also received a postgraduate fellowship from the World Academy of Sciences to complete his PhD at University Sains, Malaysia. Ali is co-author of more than 20 international journal and conference preceding papers in the field of control engineering. His hobbies include soccer, cinema, and history. You can find more information about Ali's work by looking him up on Google Scholar, and you can contact him directly by email. I'll put the link in the description of the episode. Ali, you're the most experienced, most published guest on the show so far with, I think, 23 technical papers under your belt. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jeremy, and hello to you and uh, your audience. I am also very uh, exciting to be at your episode. This is this is also really exciting. I have only had one postdoc on the show before, Ryan Persram in psychology, and he was just beginning his postdoc. And so from what I understand, you're actually nearing the end of yours. Yes, right, right, exactly. So we're going to be able to get really, really deep into the nitty gritty. I mean, I've had I've had people on the on the show who are just starting their master's degree. So this is a very interesting, unique position to be in. And honestly, first and foremost, I just want to ask you, what's the secret to your success? I mean, you're an extremely prolific publisher. How did you do it? Is there a secret? <laughs> first of all, thank you for this appreciation of my work. I can say the only thing is the perseverance and keep hard working. That's it. You can see uh, I have done this multiple publication, mostly during my PhD, which was uh, completed just less than two years and a half. That's fast. <laughs> yeah, we can say that uh, com compared to, the, for example, uh, the normal time for completing a PhD, yes, it's a little bit fast. But, uh, you know, for example, during my time at PhD, I was trying to have at least two articles being under-reviewed on journals at all of my days during the PhD. 
you you can say that this is a this is a secret something like that you know <laughs> sure yeah that's the mathematics behind it all i'm curious is it that in malaysia the expectation is that you'll finish your phd in two and a half years or did you just blow right through it really quickly compared to others uh, no i should have uh, finished my phd within three or four years okay yeah. but uh, the minimum number of uh, years that I would be allowed to defend my PhD thesis is two years. So it means that after two years, I would be allowed to finish my thesis upon the decision of my supervisor and the committee of the school. Yeah. So, so after finishing my first two years, I was discussing with my PhD supervisor and say that, okay, I think uh, I'm almost done. and I, I have published enough papers in the publication. I guess we can go for the defense. And he said that, yeah, for sure. Why not? <laughs> that's amazing. I, I think that's just super cool. I mean, I, as the listeners might know, if they've been with me since the beginning, I withdrew from my master's degree. Okay. So we're very different people. You <laughs> have gone through every single stage of the academic ladder, been extremely well published. And I just remember being absolutely terrified of even trying to get a single paper published. Oh, really? So I think it's, it's, it's really beautiful to listen to you talk about the ease with which you were able to do that. And the fact that, like you said, you always had a couple of papers in the works. Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. Okay. So that's the secret to your success. I guess there's there's maybe a little bit more to that, but at least on the surface, yeah, we've got uh, that. I, you know, I just wanted to, I said, you know, always people are looking at the published paper while we know that there were some rejected papers. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, okay. so, so I wanted to mention that, you know, in the way of publishing more, you will get more rejected materials as well. So you, you shouldn't be disappointed and keep working, keep continuing until getting acceptance. Might I ask how many times you got rejected? At least five, I remember. Okay. At least five. Okay. I think that's still a pretty good rate. If you okay. get 23 published and only five rejected, but hey, for the listeners, if you're looking to publish, just know, even Ali got rejected with all of his papers that he got through, rejection is just an inherent part of the yeah, process. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so something that's super cool that I want to also point out is way back on episode 11, we had Eitan Bolka talking about drones and dynamics and control systems. It turns out Ali is actually in the same lab as Eitan. Yeah, mostly the basic concepts are almost the same, but different applications. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so yeah, so we're going to get into the applications today. Obviously, if you want to learn about ATAN's research in the Aerospace Mechatronics Lab, more focused on drones, like I said, dynamics and control systems, that's episode 11. Today, we're going to be talking about related topics, including, like was mentioned in the introduction, swarms of autonomous robots, and also robots on the ground. And we didn't talk about that last time. So just maybe for a quick refresher, Ali, do you want to give us an idea about what autonomous mobile robots really are? Okay, sure, sure. Uh, the meaning is behind the words, autonomous mobile robots. They are robots that moving around autonomously without any supervision of the uh, human. So we, we can have autonomous mobile robots on the ground. We can have autonomous mobile robots flying. And also we have we can have uh, autonomous robots underwater. Yeah, yeah. but uh, mostly I was working on autonomous uh, flying and ground mobile robots, but uh, specifically on their swarms. I mean, when when we have uh, multiple of them in a team moving around and doing a, a requested job, and also more more importantly the localization task of them. You know, when 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 we are speaking about uh, autonomous mobile robots, one main concept is having the automatic control of these mobile robots to move around and also 
we have a very specific important problem problem of the state estimation or position estimation uh, simply we should know that where the robot is currently in order to command it to move toward its destination well so hold on a second are we trying to let them be autonomous or are we trying to command them which one is it is oh, it a mix you know, you know when, when i'm saying the command it this command could come from the automatic control implemented on the robot Okay. You see that? <laughs> and, and you know, we are commanding the robot in a higher level. For example, we want the robot to, for example, go from destination A to destination B. This is our command. Okay? Uh-huh. The lower level command, like how you should move toward this path or trajectory, how you should find your trajectory, would be defined using the automatic control implemented on the robot. So I, I want to emphasize the importance of uh, the localization topic. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into that then. So what are some of the problems that we get into when we try and localize either individual autonomous robots or robots within a group? Are there different problems with each? Short answer, yes. There are a little bit different. Okay. Okay. But if I want to be much more uh, specific, when we are speaking about the localization problem, we have the localization problem in indoor areas and in outdoor areas. In outdoor areas, mostly we are using GPS. In indoor areas, we don't have access to GPS. Mm-hmm. So there are some other technologies that we can use for indoor localization. Even for outdoor localization, when the dimensions of our robot is very small, the accuracy provided with normal GPS technology would not be sufficient for us to rely on. So there are some other technologies, right? RTK GPS, which is a little bit expensive that we can use for that. But back to your question, when uh, we want to localize a team of autonomous mobile robots or a swarm, there are some information within that network of mobile robots that we can use in order to improve and enhance our localization solution. What kind of information are you talking about? Okay, I'm talking about the relative distance or relative position information that we can get from the neighboring or adjacent agents in the network, adjacent mobile robots in the network. For example, assume that you and I, we are moving together in a a mall, okay? Visually, we we are transmitting some information considering our relative distance or relative position. For example, we will keep our distance in order to move properly in that mall. So these are some information I'm talking about. Actually, in a swarm of drones also, we can use this relative position and relative distance information in order to improve the localization solution and reach a cheaper and more reliable localization solution. Yeah. So each of the autonomous robots in a swarm, let's say we're imagining a flying swarm now, you're saying each of those is kind of aware of the position of each of the other ones? They could be or they couldn't be. Okay. According, according to the communication network that we are defining among them, we can say that some agents would have some information about the position of the other or neighboring agents if the other neighboring agents are located within their coverage radius. I mean, if they are not too away from them. So, okay, this is very interesting. I was just reading a book recently called The Wisdom of Crowds. And one of the main points they made in this book was that it's better to opt to ask a group of people what their opinion is on making a decision than to ask the most expert person in that group. Because on average, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. 
So does the same kind of thing operate in a swarm? Is it actually better if every single robot in the swarm knows where every other robot is? Or is it better to have one or maybe a handful of so-called experts who know where everybody is, but everyone else is kind of in the dark? Okay, first, this concept of average knowledge of the team is interpreted in the technical uh, domain of the cooperative control of swarm as consensus. Okay. So we can say that the agents should reach consensus over their states or their position in order to move smoothly as a team, as a swarm in the environment. So this sure. consensus is important. So regarding this question that which of these are important, actually having a leader or a knowledgeable expert to have information of the whole mm -hmm. network or let all the agents in the network transmit or uh, communicate their information together. According to the proved mathematical concepts, we can say that a reaching consensus without a very knowledgeable expert would be much more applicable and uh, reliable. So I'm saying that it is better to have a localization and cooperative control algorithm that is relying on the transmitted information between all of the agents in the network. Got it. Okay. But, but sometimes it would be difficult to have a full network of communication between all the agents. For example, if the agents are very far away from each other, our communication technology wouldn't allow us to have this full communication network. On that occasion, we are going to uh, develop and uh, suggest some solutions that rely on few number of communication links in the network. For example, there is a well-known concept in the communication of swarms named as uh, a spanning tree. This spanning tree is something like uh, having a root and there is a path to all of the agents from that root or that leader agent. So, I see. It isn't like everybody's connected to everybody else, but there's kind of this pathway. Yeah, yeah, just there is a path. Okay, so there is kind of like a leader. It isn't like they're omniscient. Like they aren't the only one that has information. There's still communication between the swarm. Exactly. Okay. So, so just to be clear, what is the best orientation then? It depends on our application. If we have an application that we can have a full network of communication between the agents, for sure we should use all of the available communication. But mm. if we have some applications that uh, the communication are not available for all of the agents in the network, we should rely on the available spanning trees. Okay, so like if there are kind of nodes or individual robots in the network and they're too far away, it isn't actually worth including them in this communication. Exactly, exactly. Okay. But still, we should solve the localization and control problem. So we should provide some solutions that rely on fewer number of communication links and it still works properly. Is this because of just the, like, because it's very computationally expensive to actually have them all connected? Like, what's the limitation? Is it money? Is it time? No, it's, it's like technology limitation. For example, we know that yeah. the Wi-Fi communication range or Bluetooth communication range or ultra-wideband communication range, all of them have some limitations of covering. So this is the main limitation. Got it. Right. I can't access my Wi-Fi network if I'm in Honolulu. Yes, for sure. It's a little too far. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this whole time I've been picturing swarms of birds, in a sense. Is your research and is this field heavily influenced by the concept of biomimicry? Biomimicry being the production of materials or systems based on the influence of things found in nature. Yes, exactly. 
the first published works by the researchers in this field of cooperative control and localization for a swarm or flocking of mobile agents are influenced by the way that the birds or ants are moving around mm. very smoothly. So bringing the concept of those relative information from birds flying around, there are some solutions based on just relative information among the agents in the network. Yeah, exactly. So what do we see in flocks of birds? Do we see this path integration like you mentioned? Or does every bird know where every other bird is? Or neither? We can say that, as I can see, each bird knows where its neighboring agents are. Okay. And they are trying to keep their distance, their position to their neighbors. And hmm. when, when we are seeing this as a whole, we can have a flocking movement of that team. I'm kind of picturing like in a giant like a soccer stadium when everybody does the wave. You yeah. know it's your turn to stand up and raise your arms just when your neighbor is, but you don't need to really focus on anything else. Yes, exactly. So okay. you, you can see the importance of the relative information, relative position. Yeah. Information. And also, recently, I'm sure that you have seen the light shows flying multiple drones in the air. For example, in the ceremonies of the New Year, in all around the world, there are lots of uh, flying drones yeah. uh, flying at night and uh, showcase or demonstrate a shape of something, right? Uh, okay. The concept of relative position information are also implemented over there. Although there are some other technologies, but uh, one of the main concepts is that. Oh, this is crazy. I feel like the applications for this are endless. Like in terms of satellites, for example, where you can send up a bunch of separate components and they can all self-arrange. Yeah. Are there applications like that currently? Like, I mean, this is an aerospace mechatronics lab. Yeah. Do you deal with the aerospace side and satellites? Currently, I am not working on, I, I don't, I'm not uh, active. Actually, I don't have any active project on the satellite things, but uh, I do have some uh, projects uh, on the uh, collaborative payload transport with uh, usage of uh, four or multiple drones. Okay. Again, uh, this could be another application of cooperative control and localization, and uh, still we can see the importance of relative position information. All right, it's time for some fun facts. We've got three today. Fun fact number one, the asteroid belt in between Mars and Jupiter contains tons of debris. The average asteroid in the asteroid belt is a million miles from its nearest neighbor. Not the crowded place we might imagine in our minds or have seen in film. Number two, Tectonic plate movement is currently pushing Greenland westward at one half inch per year, approximately the speed of growth of a human fingernail. And number three, one parsec, or parallax second, is equivalent to 3.26 light years, a distance nearly unfathomable by the human mind. Okay, so all of this so far, it sounds like we're talking about things happening outside, so we can use GPS. Yeah. But what about inside? You said things change because we don't have access to GPS inside. Does everything we just spoke about fall apart when we lose GPS? Or can we still apply the things we just spoke about to, let's say, indoor swarms or maybe just autonomous mobile robots inside? Yeah, exactly. As you mentioned, we don't have access to GPS or RTK GPS indoor. Just for information, for implementing those uh, flying drones demonstrating the light shows, we are depending on RTK GPS which is very much accurate uh, within 10 centimeters accuracy, and also oh, wow. they are expensive. But when we are working indoor, we don't have access to GPS nor uh, RTK GPS. So there are some other technologies that we can use for localization of single mobile robots or a swarm of mobile robots. 
One of the best technology I can say is ultra wideband technology. This ultra wideband technology is actually based on the RF signals, which are transmitted between one receiver and one transmitter. And by measuring the time of flight of that signal, there are some technology, some algorithms to do this time of flight measurement. We can estimate the distance between these two modules. And uh, by incorporating multiple distance measurement with multiple sender receivers, we can somehow propose a localization solution for 2D and 3D environments. This solution can be used for single agent and also some of mobile robots. Okay, hold on a couple of things. So you said there's communication between senders and receivers. Yeah. By virtue of RF signals, radio frequency? Yes, radio frequency signals, right. Okay, so like the same thing that radio towers are, are using so that when I turn the radio on in my car, I get a radio signal, same kind of thing. And Wi-Fi technology that we are using in our house also are uh, RF signals. Okay. So ultra-wideband technology is another RF technology like Wi-Fi, but in a different frequency level higher frequency level, and they have uh, some properties that help us to measure distances or measure the time of flight of sending and receiving an RF signal much more accurately. And this is the most important thing when we are doing the localization indoor. Okay. I want to build a picture for myself, okay? Because this is some pretty dense stuff. I know you've published 23 papers on, on this and unrelated concepts, but this is I'm, I'm hearing this stuff for the first time. Let's just pick one thing to focus on right now. So ground mobile robots, how are they different from, for example, airborne mobile robots in terms of this communication? Actually, in terms of the communication, there are not too much difference, but there are much more difference in the definition of the localization problem. When we are working with uh, mobile robots, our localization problem is defined in two-dimensional environment, not 3D environment. Right, okay. If all the robots are on the ground, then it's kind of like a two-dimensional plane. Yes, yes. Like ants on a table. Yeah, and what happens then? Then our localization problem would be easier and can be accomplished with lower number of fixed anchors in the environment. When I'm saying fixed anchors, there are some fixed receiver or modules attached to the other environment with fixed position. Oh, this is like virtual reality. I've seen my friends play VR before, and it, it, when you set up the virtual reality space, you have to put a couple of cameras that just sit there, and then their relative location can create the 3D environment. Is it like that, kind of? This is something like that. This is also a localization solution in 2D or 3D environment using cameras. I, I wanted also to point out, after speaking about this ultra-wideband technology, for example, I, I already know that the camera technology can be used also as a, a solution for indoor relative and uh, absolute position estimation. Yeah, you know, this technology can be used for single and also a swarm of autonomous mobile robots. When we want to implement this solution, we should attach some fixed modules to the environment. We can name them as anchors. These anchors mm. are located within fixed known locations. Yeah. And we have also one module attached to our robots, either it is mobile robot or it is flying robots. And we are receiving or we are estimating the distance of that robot to all of those fixed anchors. Got it. And since we know the known position of those anchors, and we can have uh, some solutions for the estimating the location of that mobile robot, either it is in 2D or it is in 3D. You know, the concept is exactly the same as uh, using GPS outdoor. In GPS, 
technology also we are receiving the time of flight and then distance to the satellites flying around the earth since we know the the, the location of those satellites we can estimate the position of our gps module underground but when we are going to have localization problem in swarm of indoor mobile robots we can propose some enhanced solutions how by incorporating less information from the fixed anchor and rely our solution more on the relative position information between the agents in the network how are we getting that though because we don't have gps anymore right okay yeah but we can attach uh, those ultra wideband receiver module to all of the modules Mm. So, so since we have these modules attached to each agent in the network, we can have some algorithms to provide a relative position between them. And it would help us do the localization of the whole network with fewer number of fixed anchors in the environment. This is a very, very interesting thing because, you know, when we are speaking about a very large environment, it couldn't be that easy to install lots of fixed anchors in the environment. And it, is, it would be also expensive. So... Uh -huh. The competition is to reach a solution that can deliver us good localization accuracy with less number of fixed anchor attached to the environment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I feel like I need like three weeks to digest all of this. Okay. So, sorry sorry no, no, about that. No, no, no. It's great. You're just an endless repository of knowledge and you're, you're, it's just, this is amazing. Thank you for sharing this knowledge with us. It is my pleasure. Um, yeah. So... It sounds like the technologies that are being used here aren't necessarily completely new, but they're based on older technologies. Like you're saying, it, for example, it, it's very expensive to get all these anchors set up. But I remember, okay, this might sound a bit weird. I remember back in uh, 2008, okay, when I used to play a lot of Guitar Hero, th there was a video that I saw about how they got the characters in the game to look like they were actually playing guitar. And they used a technology called motion capture. Yes, and exactly. so with motion capture, I remember seeing people wear these these black suits with like a bunch of little colored balls, and all the balls were able to detect where each limb was in space, and they could map that computationally. Are you basically using a glorified motion capture suit on these robots? We can say very cheaper one. Cheaper? Exactly. You know, motion capturing system is very expensive. Oh, why? Because you are going to install multiple cameras around when you want to have a very accurate position estimation within 10 centimeters accuracy, we should have at least, for example, in the area of uh, five meter by five meter by five meter, we should have at least about six or eight huge camera installed environment and it is very expensive. Oh, okay. okay. And, and another thing, we should have a very strong computation module installed in our environment to process all of these data. But mm. using this UWB technology, we can get rid of those a strong computation module. Also, we can have very cheaper solution. Why I'm saying that cheaper? Because the price of each sender or receiver ultra wideband module is, uh, I can say, 100 times cheaper than a camera to be installed uh, in the environment. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm speaking about the very accurate large camera with large lenses to be installed in, in the environment. So when yeah. we are comparing the price, they are very reasonable. But we'll drop a little bit of our accuracy. For example, from within 10 centimeters, we will reach uh, at the level of accuracy of within 30 centimeters or 20 centimeters accuracy, which is still reliable. Okay, hold on a second. 20 to 30 centimeters is almost a foot. How big are these autonomous robots? If they're more than a foot wide, technically they could crash into each other. 
Yeah, but here there will be some other solutions that will help us in order to avoid their collision to the environment or to each other. I would hope so. <laughs> we can name that technology as obstacle avoidance, obstacle detection or collision avoidance technologies. And I guess we are not going to speak about them. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not going to get into that hugely. Although with ATAN, we did talk a little bit about um, obstacle detection and maneuvering and stuff like that. So once again, episode 11, in case you're curious. So we initially spoke about, just as a quick review, we initially spoke about outdoors using GPS to localize swarms, solving the localization problem. Then we now just talked about sending and receiving ultra-wideband technology for indoors, both for ground robots in two dimensions and for flying swarms in three dimensions. Yeah, exactly. Where do we go from here? Can we, can we have swarms in four dimensions? Can we, <laughs> can we make a time machine here? Up to now, we already spoke about the localization problem a lot. But we yeah. can also speak about the control problem as well of this swarm. Okay. When we are speaking about the control problem of a swarm of drones, we can also use that uh, relative position information in order to enhance our control solution to be implemented, distributed, not centralized on an external machine or on a one of the agents. I mean, when I'm saying that distributed control algorithm is, is like that we are implementing control algorithms, same control algorithm on all of the agents that we have in the environment without any change in a computation level at each module. And we don't need to have any central control extension in order to control the movement of the swarms. So using these cooperative control solution and the relative position information among the agents, we can reach some distributed control solution in order to let the swarm move around on itself. So this is very interesting because to bring it back to that book I was reading called The Wisdom of Crowds, there are a couple of key things that, that was mentioned about the importance of maximizing, you could say, the intelligence of the group. One of them is decentralization, like you're speaking about, but the other one is diversity. And so if you have a group of people who all have access to the same knowledge, then they're completely homogeneous. There's no diversity in... So when you have different backgrounds and information access and you bring those people together, that's when you maximize intelligence. But what you're telling me here is that all of the robots in the swarm now have access to the same information. So would that not make them less intelligent because they all just know the same thing? Or is there clearly a fundamental difference between humans and robots here? About this information, as you mentioned, they are same in their type of the information. All of the information is the position or the velocity or something like that. But this information is different from one agent to another agent. Okay? Okay. And... Uh, transmitting these same type of information but different values would make sense in order to have good cooperative control for the whole thing yeah and another thing you just mentioned like something interesting about a homogeneous network versus non-homogeneous networks yeah you know we can have a network or actually a swarm of flying and ground mobile robots that makes our network to be non-homogeneous different dynamic systems oh that's crazy. So, okay. And, and there are lots of research work on that. So we can <laughs> have also cooperative control and localization solution for non-homogeneous swarms. Oh, my. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. That's so beautiful. Okay. So like having communication between the two-dimensional space on the ground and the three-dimensional space in the air. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we that's, we, that's we can have some solutions for that as well. Oh, that's so good. Oh, okay, are you working at all in uh, non-homogeneous systems? You know, 
when when we are developing cooperative control algorithms and localization solutions on the first spot we are thinking about uh, solutions to have generic application so when we are developing the algorithms and providing mathematical proof of them we consider the generic type of systems that are included in our network so when we are considering generic type of systems in our network in our system we can say that this swarm could be homogeneous or non-homogeneous although i have developed some cooperative control and uh, localization solution for generic type of systems in the net swarm but i didn't implement those solutions on uh, practical cases okay, yet yet huh? but hopefully yet later <laughs> sure sure so i did actually just want to talk briefly about the fact that you're currently writing a book which is on model free controllers yeah exactly thank you for asking about that yeah uh, actually this is uh, an extension of uh, my previous published paper and also my phd work about model free data driven control algorithms when i'm saying that model free from its name we can say that it is not based on some defined models or dynamic models of the system so we can have a generic definition of our dynamic system and then define a control algorithm just based on the output of the system, output measured with the sensors and also the control inputs fed into the system. So in terms of model-free control algorithms, we have automatic control algorithms which don't rely on the well-defined dynamic model of the system. Just we are using the input-output data sets of the system. Yeah, I, as you mentioned, yes, I am just uh, in a collaboration with a research group in Romania in order to prepare that book for a CRC Press. And yeah. uh, we hope that it would be published in uh, mid of year uh, 2021. That's soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, uh, I am responsible for uh, three of eight chapters. Uh, one mm -hmm. of the chapters uh, are about defining and uh, developing a cooperative model-free control algorithm for swarm of mobile agents. It, it could be drones or ground mobile robots yeah so the reason why i ask specifically is because if somebody listens to this episode and they want to get the real deal i want to be able to provide a link to be able to get your book access to your book so obviously since the book's not yet available i won't have the link but we're going to keep in touch and the moment it becomes available for for purchase I'm going to make sure that I incorporate that link into the description. So future listeners, if the book is already out, please go check the description because you might find it there. Sure, sure. It would be yeah. my pleasure. Absolutely. Oh, that's amazing. Obviously, we can't get into every single nitty gritty detail here. But for those who are really just fascinated by this topic, which include myself, then I'm really looking forward to uh, scanning through this, what will sh surely be a very dense book on the topic. So that's that's awesome. This brings us to our last question, okay? Final question. You can interpret this either in the context of academia or just life in general, okay? Imagine you're standing at the foot of an auditorium. It's a thousand person auditorium and every single seat is filled. All eyes are on you. What do you tell the audience? <laughs> um, I would say uh, just Keep working and do what you love most in this world. Are you doing what you love most? Exactly. I always, from my beginning of the career in academy or industry, I was trying to keep going what I was mostly passionate about, being passionate about. So 
yeah, and currently I'm also trying to to do my hard work in what I'm uh, exciting about more. I think we just figured out what the real secret is behind your 23 publications. It's the passion and yeah, motivation and the love for what you do. That and also having a couple of papers on the back burner at all times. <laughs> yeah, sure. Awesome. Ali, this was so cool. Thank you so much for getting involved and being on the show today. I really appreciate your presence here. Have an awesome rest of the day. Like I said, we're going to keep in touch because I want to hear when that book comes out. Sure. Thank you very much. I also I was also very happy to have this interview with you. I, I, I also wish you all the best uh, Thank you so for, much. Uh, for what you are doing. Awesome. I hope to continue to do this for many, many years to come. So listeners, stay for tuned. For sure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Ali, thanks again so much. Take care. Thank you and goodbye. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. You found the secret ending. Congratulations. If you want to let me know that you found the secret ending, hit me up on Apple Podcasts. Put a review on there with five stars and use the word stupendous or phenomenal or incredible with lots of R's and I'll know it was you. <laughs> I'll also pop in another fun fact for you for making it all the way to the end of the episode. Thanks so much for being here. It's so cozy back here. Okay, fun fact. The Earth's core is estimated to be about as hot as the surface of the sun, which is approximately 10,000 degrees Celsius. So feel free to bring a tank top on your next journey to the center of the Earth, and I'll catch you next week, episode 40.